now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener, we can begin. So welcome to episode 20 of the Mainframe Performance Topics podcast. Two is one and one is none. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development Organization in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer from someplace else and also trying to learn how to edit podcasts. Okay, Martin, where have you been lately? Uh, actually, I've been nowhere, I think. Unsurprising. Okay, I'm sure you've been many places in your mind, though, huh? <laughs> oh, uh, a load of them, yes. Yeah. Uh, I've been to the IBM Tech U in Hollywood, Florida. It was, a, it was a wonderful event. Lots of people, warm weather, a little too humid for me, but it, it's okay. We had a lot of good attendance at the Z sessions, the ZOS sessions, a lot of good interest in Zoe. It was It was a great conference. All right, we've got some feedback on our podcast. So what do we got, Martin? Right, so so this is uh, valuable feedback, actually, but one, one I wish we didn't have in a sense, but we're taking it positively. So the feedback we got was that the stereo effect we're using, which is pretty full on, is actually rather too aggressive. Uh, actually, that's uh, there are two camps on this. There are people who like the stereo very much, and there are people who really don't like it at all. So what we're trying to do with this episode is actually to narrow it. So actually, you're all being experimented on because I'm using an iOS app on the iPad to do the vast majority of the editing. Uh, and one of the features there is the ability to narrow the stereoscape. We're going to try 30% at this point and see how well it goes. It might be too narrow or it might not be narrow enough. We'll see. So yes, you're being experimented on. and. Actually, as we record this, this this little topic, I've edited the three main topics, and it's gone pretty well. There are actually a couple of minor sound issues, which are actually to do with the recording and nothing to do with the mixing. So so we'll see how this experiment goes. So thank you for the various people who gave us feedback on, on Stereo. Yes, we do appreciate it, and keep the uh, comments and feedback coming. All right, Martin, so again, explain the title of this episode. It's one of your concoctions. Well, actually, I stole it. So two is one and one is none is something people say quite a lot when talking about aspects of our topics topic. So it came from that. All right. Well, I am excited to hear that topics topic. So this this is the second time we've done this. So I guess it's a regular feature now. It's our what's new feature. And you've got one, haven't you? Yeah, these are just snippets of uh, new items that have recently come out we're pretty excited about. So the one that I have and I've selected is dynamic IODF activation for standalone CFs. And the reason why I picked that is before you used to need a, a POR, and now you can drive it remotely from another tech. Now, the Z14 GA2 is necessary for both the driving and the target system to do this. It's a PRISM-based solution, and you need one more POR to take place on the target in order to establish a firmware-defined master console services LPAR so that from then on out, you don't need another IPL or a POR, sorry. You do need a couple of APARs for this, and the APARs will be put into our show notes so you can make sure that you have them installed if you want to use this function. So another thing I noticed, which I rather liked from the GA2 announcement, was something on going to shorten to async cache structure crossing validation, which I think will actually have some significant benefit for Sysplex performance. Now, that has broadly the same hardware and CF-level prereqs. 
Nana's item, uh, you know, C14, GA2, and all that. Uh, I would expect, though, that there's going to be some DB2 support needed for this, so I would imagine this is a virtual control. Anyhow, I don't think we want to go into too much detail in our what's new section on either of those, and certainly this async cache structure custom validation one is one we might well want to touch on in much detail later on. So hopefully those are ones when you're looking at what quite like. Yeah, it's kind of funny, Martin. I was just noticing I've picked more of a system availability one and you've picked more of a performance one. Who would have thought, huh? Yeah, who would have thought that? And now it's time for our mainframe topic, which is ZFS Shrink. Yeah, this is an exciting topic. It has been a top customer requirement, and we did deliver it. So I'm, I'm very excited because I think it's a great, a great requirement, too. So this is a system command where you can reduce the size of the ZFS file system itself. Not to be confused with compressing files within a file system, I assume. No, not at all. Um, there's also that function to compress an individual file. But the shrink command is for the entire file system, which is code. And if you mentioned before you're making fun of the ZFS admin command and wondering what it was, well, we're surprised where you put shrink. It is on the ZFS admin command. And what exactly is the ZFS admin command? Oh, it's the very handy uh, Swiss Army knife of ZFS commands. It's got a bunch of subcommands. Um, and so what we have is, is a new one now. It's ZFS admin shrink. So on this command, you actually specify the target finalized system that you want for the size in kilobytes of that ZFS file system or aggregate. And then what happens is it gets rounded to the nearest 8K boundary. Now, there is an option on the ZFS admin shrink command that is a little bit interesting, and it's the AI option or the no AI option. Uh, AI means active increase, and it's the default, but no AI means don't give me active increase. So I think I need some AI or artificial intelligence to work out what active increase actually means. Yeah, funny overloading of that acronym, yeah. So when you're shrinking a file system and it's being accessed, we might need additional blocks over the shrink size that you've given us as the target size so that we can actively increase it. And again, by default using AI, but if you don't want us to, we'll say no AI. But if you need us to actively increase to the original size of the file system that was in the first place, the shrink command's gonna end with an error. So that's pretty logical that you won't be doing any shrink. Also, if you don't want to actively increase, so you have used uh, overridden in the default, overridden the default, and you use dash no AI, and you really need to actively increase, that will end with an error as well. So let's dive in a little bit into what's actually happening on the shrink. So on a shrink, what we're gonna do is we're gonna scan uh, to determine which blocks must, must move. And that really will take the longest part of the operation. So I assume we move blocks to minimize secondaries rather than just leaving some holes. Yeah, that would be the goal. And that's why I think customers did a requirement for this you know, shrink command. So the blocks are gonna be moved from the portion that are gonna be released into the portion that is going to remain. And then after the blocks are moved, the space is going to be released in which you're going to see a very brief quiesce. But you don't need to stop applications during this entire process. They can still be using the file system while the shrink is occurring. 
But there must nonetheless be some considerations on when you're going to do this. Yeah, of course, you know, because if you're going to have applications app accessing files in the file system and we're moving stuff around, it's going to be recommended not to shrink during peak times that you're going to need those files for an application. Of course, the bad news is there are, aren't really any good times to do these sorts of things. Off-peak times don't exist anymore much. No, you just have to pick kind of a lesser peak time, I guess. So how do you know how big to make the target size for it to shrink to? Well, you know, uh, we can use the ZFS admin FS info option for uh, looking at the aggregate size in K, the free size in 8K blocks, and also 1K fragments. So that command will give you lots of information about that information. But, you know, I was talking to a system test buddy of mine, and he even had a better way than fsinfo, and I liked it a lot. It was the df command with the dash k capital P option, and that will tell you the 1k used and available, and those would be consistent for what you have to specify on the shrink command, which is 1k sizes. So it's a bit of a shame there isn't an option on fsinfo to have it suggest a size. You know, alas, no, and there's no option on FSinfo to suggest a size, and there's no option on the shrink command itself to suggest a size. And uh, But if you take the size and subtract it from the free size, that'll give you what's in use, and then you do some rounding, and that should give you a decent size in order to put on the shrink command that you're going to use. But be careful if you use the fsinfo free sizes because those are specified in 8K blocks and the size on the shrink command is going to be in 1K. So you really have to keep your units straight. And that's why I like that df-kp command instead. Of course, it's just shifting three bits to the right in binary. Much easier. Yeah. Yeah, you got to be careful about that, though. Don't, don't drop anything. So uh, the other thing is don't pick a final size that's going to be way too small or else you'll have to keep growing on it. So you can just pick a, a reasonable size, I would say. So trust through verification, as somebody once said. So how do you verify you got the size you actually wanted? Oh, the lovely ZFS admin FS info, of course. That'll tell you exactly what the size you've got is. And is this new and exotic or is this a release that anybody's got? This is only in ZOS 2.3 base, in which there were a lot of ZFS functions, but this is the, the shrink function is only in the 2.3 base. And 2.3's been out for quite a while already, hasn't it? Yeah, and everyone should be on it, I hope. So we're talking about shrinking. What about, however, if you want to increase the size of the file system? Yeah, well, that's never been a problem because we haven't had in the past uh, the agger grow option, which is probably was what got us in the situation in the first place is that we've agger growed so much we now need to do a shrink. So we had an agger grow, but we don't seem to have an agger shrink, but never mind. Consistency is the foolish hobgoblin, etc. So, of course, I'm going to have to ask, how are we going to monitor this stuff? Okay, so another 2-3 function is uh, ZFS writing us a meth info. So you're going to want to look at SMF 92 subtype 50, and this is cut on the event level when it happens, and this is going to occur for both. You'll get that subtype record for when you do a grow or when you do a shrink, so for both events. Hmm. SMF 92 is a, sub, is a type I know of, but I've never really played with, so uh, it just strikes me there are way too many subtypes here for normal sanity, whatever that is. Uh, but in particular, what about the performance of the file system in use? 
Well, there we go again. We've got uh, ZFS providing that information in SMF 92 subtype 59. Uh, this will give you the number of IOs and the rate of them, but you might be careful because this might occur way too often. So you're going to want to collect those records wisely if you really need them. I really hope we don't actually have 59 subtypes, but I have a horrible feeling we do. Let's move on to our performance topic, where Martin is going to talk about CP enable and hyper dispatch. You said that very fluently. So this is quite a technical topic, actually. So I'm going to dive straight in with talking about IO interrupts. So every IO you do ends with an interrupt to a processor to tell it that basically the IO is completed. So clearly it needs to be handled by a processor. And ideally it needs to be handled in a timely way. So when you're servicing an IO interrupt, one of the things that happens at the end of it is you issue the test pending interrupt instruction, or TPI for short, which has been around since XA, I believe, which is a very long time. And this test pending interrupt, as the name suggests, is actually a test. And basically the test comes back true if there is another interrupt to be handled. And in that case, the processor handles the interrupt uh, very efficiently. If it's false, then another processor potentially has to pick up the interrupt sometime later, meaning there was no queue. If you have many TPI successes, namely coming back true, then it suggests a queue of IR interrupts has built up. So this is about timeliness and efficiency. Yeah, so let me guess. Timeliness and efficiency, there's got to be a trade-off in there. Yes, because... Timeliness is important in servicing IOs quickly. And so waiting for a processor to actually accept the interrupt is not a great idea. On the other hand, having many, many processors handling the interrupt is actually not particularly efficient. So there is a trade-off here between timeliness on the one hand and processor efficiency on the other, which is actually managed based on the value of the CP enable parameter. Actually, it's two values. If the test pending interrupt percent that comes back true is below the first value. In other words, there are fewer test pending interrupts that come back with there's still another IO interrupt to handle, then we disable a processor from handling IO interrupts, which nods in the direction of efficiency. If, however, the test pending interrupt instruction comes back with, yes, there is more work to do above the second value, then we enable a processor to handle them in order to be more timely. So there's a pair of values here. Yeah, so when I introduced this topic, I talked about hyper-dispatch. So why did I mention hyper-dispatch? Uh, well, because I told you to, but seriously, folks, let's talk about the case without hyper-dispatch first. What you have to remember about the non-hyper-dispatch case is that access to physical CPU is smeared across all the online processes. Basically, the weights are shared out across all the LPAR's logical engines. And there, we recommend a CP-enable value of 0, 0, which basically gives all the processes a chance to handle all interrupts. And we want to do that because, particularly for low-weight LPAR's, it makes it much more likely that the processor actually is dispatched on a physical processor and therefore able to handle the interrupt in a timely fashion. Okay, and with hyper-dispatch? Well, those of you who have been following along in terms of LPAR design and so on know that hyper-dispatch changes the game completely. So here, 
the access to CPU isn't smeared across all the logical processes for the old part. It's actually corralled into fewer processes. So for the vertical highs, that's vertical high logical processes, each logical processor has a full engine's weight when you do the arithmetic for the pool. And if there's any weight left over for the old part, then it's divided amongst one or two vertical mediums, which have less than the full engine's weight. Actually, the design here is to have at least half an engine's weight in the vertical medium, if at all possible. Now here, we recommend a completely different value of CP enabled. So here we recommend CP enabled 10,30. So remember, the lower value is going to be the percentage of test pending interrupts that come back without something else to do, and it leads to the logical processor being disabled. And the 30 value is basically the converse. It's when we've got more work to do and therefore we enable more. So here, the CP enable value is actually quite different from without the hyper dispatch case. All right, so I, I know where we're going to get here because we're going to be able to look at some data. And I'm assuming this is SMF? Yes, this is SMF. And basically, the whole story is told in SMF type 70, which is the CPU record. So the first thing is the 70 record documents LPAR setup, including hyperdispatch state. And also at the engine level, the weights of those engines, and whether they're vertically high, or vertically medium, vertically low, and also whether they're horizontal instead of vertical or with no hyperdispatch. We also have some counts here. So we have count the number of interrupts handled by logic processor, and counted the number of those successfully handled by test pending interrupt or TPI. And that's how you can calculate the TPI percentage yourself down at the logical engine level. But generally speaking, you'd probably want to summarize it actually up at the LPAR level. So I'm assuming that we're talking about this because you've looked at some customer data? Yes, yes, I have. And I got sensitized to it by a customer situation, which I'm not going to go into very much. Um, now, what I saw in the data, amongst many, many other things, is, is a few things that, that are consistent with the expected behavior. So here, there were LPARs with hyperdispatch and LPARs without. And the hyperdispatch-enabled LPARs basically had their I.O. interrupt handling enablement starting at the lowest processor and working upwards. And this is consistent with how CP enabler 10,30 works. There were other LPARs without HD, rather hyper dispatch switched on, and those were enabled from the highest logical processor, again with CP enabled 10,30. Um, now, I didn't have a case where we had CP enable of 0, 0, either hyper dispatch or non hyper dispatch, but I would have expected in the 0, 0 case to have seen. IO interrupt handling and test pending interrupts smeared across all the processes. Now, there were some cases which were a bit unfortunate in this set of data. So there were LPARs with tiny weights. So for example, we had an LPAR that's probably a pathological case that had 0.1 engines worth of weight. And at various times, that LPAR was a logical two-way, a logical three-way, a logical four-way, and a logical five-way. So clearly, a very, very thin smearing of weights across that LPAR's logical engines. So the point there is, if you see that happening, you think it's not going to be that time the in-servicing IO interrupts. And indeed, 
from a GTFIO trace, one of my CE colleagues determined that was indeed the case, that we were getting delay for IO interrupt handling. So you have to be very careful about LPARs with tiny weights, particularly with probably more logical engines than they should have. So that was an interesting customer data sample. I think I'd probably be breaking confidences if I say much more about it. Yeah, so it's interesting you actually got to some good conclusions about that customer data sample, right? Yes, I think so. It basically illustrates that hyperdispatch is working the way it should, and also, more to the point for this topic, that CP Enable was working the way it should, and putting those two together, the interaction between CP Enable and hyperdispatch um, was clearly there. So I think this is a topic worthy of consideration, which is why I included it in this podcast episode. Because I think people want to get the timeliness versus efficiency trade-off right. And particularly with hyperdispatch having been mainstream for quite a long time, I think that changes things. People need to, in a sense, adjust to that. So the CP enable values people have might not be optimal in the hyperdispatch age. The other thing, though, I think is what made the customer case interesting was lots and lots of LPARs. So I think these days, with LPARs plethorating, namely you're getting many, many more on the machine or in the, in the sysplex or in an environment, um, this sort of thing gets more difficult to get right. So I, I do think this is a topic worthy of consideration. And actually, the instrumentation really helps. It. And now it's time for our topics topic. Yeah, I picked this one because I'm actually living through it. And, and the topic is, how do you archive family information? Now, in this treatment, we're really just talking about personal and family information. And in fact, we're only going to talk about a subset of information we might have. Yeah, because what I'm looking at right now is photos and also audio and video and how to really keep that for the ages, right? Yeah, and I would say a different set of problems attached to things like writings, so we're not going to attempt to deal with that here. Yeah, so the thing that really came up for me recently is backing up this kind of very important information that I want to keep for a long time. And I think a useful rule of thumb, which I stole shamelessly from another podcast, is two is one and one is none, meaning you can never really have too many backups. Right, and I totally agree with that because I'm going to make sure that I have multiple backups and multiple backup techniques to make sure that at some time in the future I will be able to find and get at it. Now, one thing I do personally practice is trying to keep backups in different physical locations. So. Different physical locations is definitely important for your backups. Yeah, so in today's society, does that mean you have multiple cloud mo locations that you back up to? I think cloud and also more local things. Yeah, so we've got to really think about modern media versus legacy, right? And when are we going to adopt a new technology here? Yeah, and this is very real for me because a lot of my digital photographs are on compact disc. Yes, folks, that's what CD stands for. But then I moved on to storing stuff on DVDs. Uh, and then, and this is roughly where I am now, the more modern photographs are actually stored on, on hard disk. 
Yeah, so, you know, how did you convert between the ones? You talked about CDs for photos. I don't even have a device that can read a CD anymore. So, I mean, you've got to keep converting these things up generation and generation and generation. And, you know, I know that there's businesses will do that, but how are you going to get the conversion done? So now you've got me worried because the one device I've got that will actually read CDs usefully is, is obsoleted by the latest Mac OS um, release, which is Mojave. But yeah, I have actually been through the process of converting everything on CDs onto a hard disk and then going towards cloud and off-site multiple backups. So yes, this, the conversion thing to keep stuff, and I don't actually expect it to be corruption-free, that's an ongoing problem. Right, but even when you put it on the hard disk and maybe even move it out to the cloud, like you said, are those cloud providers going to stay in business for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? So I, I think the thing here is thinking about retrieval, if you're thinking long-term about this. So how do you retrieve this data or your ancestors retrieve this data or your descendants, sorry. So how are they going to get this? I mean, I use Google Photos a lot. And I just went out there and on my Google Photos, I did a search on just pyramids, right? That word pyramids. And amazingly, it found a lot of pyramids, even though I didn't tag any of those photos as pyramids and it somehow found pictures that had pyramids in it so google's invested a lot of effort in actually doing the build of the metadata databases so that sort of thing just works most of the time you have to bear in mind that google's doing it actually on their servers in in the cloud the apple approach is a bit different actually so um you know apple photos whether on ios or on mac os you can do similar things so i actually put in cats surprisingly as my search term uh, on my iphone now you have to bear in mind that apple's tied one of its hands behind its back to all the search on the device so actually again though I got pretty good selection of hits. And what was quite interesting to me was came back with not only cats, but a category called cat-like animals, which actually <laughs> they all were cats, but um, I think it wasn't quite so sure. So that, so there's a lack, slight lack of crispness there. So yeah, Apple does it. But bear in mind they're doing it all on the device and supposedly nowhere near their cloud or service. Yeah, but I think the point is that these providers are looking at our photos. They're not just treating them as, you know, a black box, right? They're looking at these things and looking at what they can do. And if, you know, I can do that and look at it, then they could look at it too, right? Right. On, on the upside, of course, we're not having to tag, you know, photos of cats or photos of pyramids or, or, or whatever. So um, we're getting something for them having our data. The other thing that worries me about retrieval is... You know, how, how do you find that file that contains a particular phrase on your hard disk? Well, one of the nice things on, on macOS is that Finder Search actually works inside files. In fact, when we do research for episodes, including this one, I actually search for keywords inside the outline files from previous shows to make sure we know we talked about whatever it was in episode 9 or we don't talk again about the same thing. So, you know, it actually isn't just photos and, and uh, media of that sort. But I have to say, I still have a hard time finding anything. But I guess that's a me problem. But I guess it's also an everybody else problem in being disorganized. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I still can't find things, even though I, I think I'm highly organized. So 
You know, we've talked about this, and we've got a couple of serious questions here. More than a couple, actually. But, uh, okay, so I get to ask the nasty one, which is, what happens when I'm dead? Yeah, interesting. So I looked on Facebook, and Facebook has a policy and a protocol for what happens that you can say what you wanted, what happens to your data when, when you've died. So that has a protocol there. And also I looked at Google, and Google also has a protocol. And, and the, the direct quote that I found on Google was, uh, the ability to approve a family member or friend to download some of your account content in the event it is left unattended for an amount of time you've specified. So I guess uh, left unattended might be nice for meaning dead, right? Yes, yeah, so well, I guess if you come back and haunt, does that, does that stop the unattended period? I guess it doesn't. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so, so um, the standard advice here is actually pretty clear. So what you ideally would do is write a will and tell family how, to, how you'd like them to handle the material. Um, so yes, what you'd like to have happen is one element of it because obviously you can't force people to do that sort of thing. But also, equally important, is the mechanics of accessing your accounts, the relevant ones anyway. So what happens if I have a whole lot of this family legacy data? Will anybody else really care about it? So that, ho that holiday I went on in 1979, I suspect my grandchildren, if I ever get to have any, won't really care about that. But, you know, everything is actually potentially archived material, which is why never very clearly throw stuff away. And archive material is of potential importance to people like historians. Although I have to say, you know, looking, looking at photographs that people tend to share, which is probably similar to the ones they tend to keep, aliens are going to come down and think the dominant species is cats. <laughs> and those cats will have varying degrees of senses of humor. Oh, yes, my cats being the smartest ones, right? So, you know, what about Big Brother? We've talked about... Uh providers being able to look inside our photos to see what they are? What about Big Brother? I mean, what are they doing to protect us? Right. So I think the one thing you can't take as a stance is, the, well, I've got nothing to hide stance. It's not really socially a good idea. And anyway, I would have to say, if you look hard enough, everybody has something to hide or somebody to protect or some things that really are not the business of Big Brother. Yeah, and I, I think it's coming down to who you're going to trust as your service provider. So the other question, to wrap this up, is, well, so you post some photos on a site or you back them up to the cloud. Who actually owns the material of that? And do you really care? And my suspicion is actually a lot of people have never thought about this, and if they did, they don't necessarily care because the utility value to them of having somebody else store their stuff overrides the question of ownership. Yeah, it's going to be a balancing act here. You're going to have some give and some take. And now as we come to the end of this episode, it's time for our customer requirements spot. IBM customer requirements we discuss are neither committed nor indicated that they are even going to be in plan. They may not be even a good idea to do. They are simply two people talking about customer requirements publicly available for viewing and ones that catch your eyes. By no means should every requirement they talk about be construed as anything that the IBM Corporation is even thinking of doing. Our opinions are our own. Your mileage may vary. Void were prohibited and items displayed or a serving suggestion, part of a nutritious breakfast, and past results are not indicative of future performance. The customer requirement we have is one that I really enjoy, <laughs> ZOSMF Workflow Deep Search. It is number 126042. And the reason why I like this requirement is that it was written by me because I want this function. And I have a little bit of a history of getting the workflow 
requirements I want. So I'm hoping I'm going to get this one. But let me read to you what I wrote. Within a ZOSMF workflow instance, allow the user to look for an argument within the workflow itself. Right now, the search button only finds strings that are in the titles of the steps and not in the tabs on the insides, such as general instructions or notes. It raises, in my mind, the question about find and replace. Yeah, so you're probably used to doing a find and then having a find and replace capability, but we're talking about a workflow instance here, and so I am not so keen on the replace part. However, I don't know. Let's see what other people think about that later. If I had the find, I would just be much happier than I am now, which is uh, doing what I call a weak search. So I think the other thing about the place part of this is there are probably better ways of building workflow, generating workflows. And so the typical use case of you know, repl replacing a placeholder with an actual value is probably not best done this way. So yeah, find I can see would be really useful to replace, maybe not quite so much. Yeah, well, remember, you're not creating a workflow for other people to use here, right? You're just working within the instance that you've already created and you want to execute yourself. So there's a bunch of different ways to create a workflow. So, yeah, that would be find and replace would be great for those creation of workflows. But this is just within the instance itself once you've got it down. Right, right. So that seems like a good requirement to me. Oh, yes, it's the best requirement ever. So and, and not go, just, go vote. <laughs> and not just because it's yours. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about out and about, places we expect to be speaking at or visiting um, in the near future. So by the time we've got this out, it won't be long till GSC annual conference in the UK, Whittleby Hall, November 5th to 7th. Yeah, I uh, will see you actually in person at that conference, which would be great, Martin. And I really like this conference a lot, and they get so many more people than they have the year before. And they've got a huge attendance already signed up. We've got 436 registered, and this is about a month out. And actually, by the time you hear this, or at any rate, by the time we get this out, I should probably be ensconced, good word, I think, in a nice little town in North Carolina with a census population in 2010 of 3,400 people. So I'm looking forward to that trip. And then, you know, the time zone whiplash of coming back from the talk. So a little bit of travel here. Yeah, okay. So I'll see you. You'll be uh, just as tired as I am in the UK. So, of course, we welcome your feedback. And we would like to hear what you think about this episode or any episode or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear. Now it's time for On the Blog. And Martin, I believe you've got a couple of blogs, right? Yes, I have a couple of blog posts. So one of them, which is probably of interest to the Apple Mac community and almost nobody else, but has gotten an alarmingly large number of downloads or, or sorry, visits, is something called Invoking Keyboard Maestro from PopClip. It's part of my automation journey. And if you don't know what Keyboard Maestro is and you don't know what PopClip is, this probably won't help but they're both great automation tools to make it more productive. All right. Well, it sounds like it's Apple, so I might skip that one. I think you, <laughs> what's your, I think what's you, I think you probably will. And actually, I'm not fishing for more uh, visits to, to that page because I've got more than I ever thought I would have. I thought nobody would read it, but literally hundreds of people have. Um, well, uh, yeah, well, I might, I might browse it for, I don't know what pop clip is. I might browse it to see what that is. So the other one is actually a screencast, which is about SMF 59. Um, it's called Topology Today, and it's the 13th screencast. Actually, it's the 14th, because again, I start at zero. So screencast 13, Topology Today is my other one. 
I actually have one. So it's usually uh, you that have all of them, and now I have actually one. I wrote it recently, and it's about my actually being a user for another company and then comparing it to IBM and, and what we found or what I found and what I know internally from IBM, the struggles we have. So it's been kind of an interesting comparison. And I did read that one. I did enjoy it. And it's slightly uncomfortable reading if you apply it to your own company, I think. So good one there. Yeah, well, it is uncomfortable. <laughs> so, you want to contact us? You should know how to do it. We are, or I am on Twitter at mwally, Twitter, and also my email is mwally at us.ibm.com. And I'm Martin Packer on Twitter and martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com for email. So it goes.